got dumped to somebody to some other land and you got pushed out of your own land and now you're a stranger in a different land and he's not just referring to you that way for uh, just because that happened to you there is a purpose in this he is a chosen you're chosen you are chosen exiles when when I hear the word chosen I think chosen for what Chosen for what reason? Why did you choose me? Why have you elected me? Why have you placed me in this situation? Here is one of the strong problems that we often have as we go about buzz, 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 there we go. As we go about living as Christians in this world, and we think of the word exile, and he turns around and uses this same thing for all Christians later in chapter two and verse twelve. But at this particular point, we, we read this and just think about yourself being exiled to this strange country. What would be your tendency? My tendency would be, because I'm more of an introvert, my tendency would be, well, I'm just going to mind my own business and stay away from everybody. <laughs> I mean, they don't like me, and I'm not thrilled about them either because they do all this other stuff. And so just leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone, and we'll get along just fine by keeping ourselves in our own little area. And that's not what the Lord is doing here. You know, the Lord always is using the circumstances that He places us in, and that's something I miss a lot. I don't know about you, but it's easy to do. You're placed in a different circumstance. You're not really maybe very happy about it. You're shocked about it, or maybe you are happy about it. But you're not realizing from God's point of view why you're there and what His intent is in that. That's one of the interesting things that Peter does here. You're born again to a living hope, but you're born again for a purpose. Follow with me just for a moment to notice how he writes about this purpose later In chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then this great word, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the things we're going to talk about this evening that is vitally important And this is important if you're a grandfather, a grandmother, a mother, a father, a young person, a single young person, a person or a young person going to school. Know who you are. There is nothing more important than that when you are ready to move into the world around you, when you're ready to walk out of your house into this other world. Know who you are. Know what your purpose is. Know why you're there. It will do wonders for how you'll be able to deal with the suffering and persecution that will often come your way. But first and foremost, know who you are. And here's what the Lord just begins with through Peter. He says, this is what I made you to be. A chosen race, a royal priesthood. And by the way, stop with priest just a second here. When you read the words royal priesthood, what do you think about? Well, you might think royal is kingdom. We're in this great kingdom. What do you think about when you think of priesthood? I know when I was growing up, what was often said about priesthood is, well, you know, that means you just go get to go directly to God. You don't have to go through some earthly person. That, that 
there may be some truth of that. That is not what he's dealing with here. It is not what he's talking about. When you're a priest, you are in a position to mediate other people toward God. You are able to now bring people to God. What did the priest do in the Old Testament? The priests were people who taught the people and brought them to God. They were the individuals who could mediate that. That's what we are to the world. I'll make you a kingdom of priests, God said through Moses in Exodus chapter 19. But this is the end result, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were once a people, but now you're God's people. You once received, were not, did not receive mercy. Now you've received mercy. Therefore I urge you, verse 11, as strangers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Would you simply look at that just for a second and notice... Who are the ones that are going to see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation? Who are they in that verse? They're the ones speaking evil of you. Whoa! You know, when somebody speaks evil of me, I just go, well, might as well leave them alone. (laughs) No, 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 no. God is interested in the people that are speaking evil of us. God is interested in the people who think we're crazy. God is interested in the people who are blaspheming Him and profaning His name. And He says, this is why you're here. You thought you just had an unlucky unlucky thing happen to you and you got exiled. But you're here for a very, very important look verse. reason. Look down on into uh, verse chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Who's he trying to say? The ignorance of foolish people. That's who he's trying to, to deal with here. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. You wives, be subject to your husbands, especially those who don't obey the word. Well, why, why? So that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Why am I I talking to you? Because I want you to understand you're crashing the culture of the world. One of the things that you see, we mentioned this briefly this morning, that when you're reading the book of Acts and you see this constant persecution over and over again, the reason is, is clear. These apostles, these Christians, these people who have become Christ's people are absolutely destroying the culture of the world. They're invading it. They're messing it up. That's why people are upset. You're taking a different path. You're turning the world upside down, as they said there in Ephesus. This is what's going on here. So look look further in chapter 3 and verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, it's not always necessary, may not always happen, but if you should... You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Have a good conscience through this. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. What did Christ also do? If you're going, if you suffer, but don't worry about it, you just be ready to give an answer. You set Christ aside in your heart. You put Him number one there, and you do your job and be prepared to give an answer. Why? Because Christ also suffered. I want you to do like He did. But I want you to notice also what He did. And Christ also suffered. And He talks about Jesus preaching in the Spirit to those at the time before the flood. Remember that? Uh, you say, well, how did Jesus do? Well, he did it through, he did it through uh, Enoch. <laughs> he did it through uh, Noah. He did it through these individuals whom the Spirit strove with them for that 120 years. Genesis 6 verse 3. God was striving. How many people did Jesus say that He preached to in the Spirit before the flood? He says it right there in the text, doesn't He? He saved eight people. Jesus preached to the people before the flood. And I've seen some estimates of a minimum of one billion people on the face of the earth. And He saved eight you think you're not very good at evangelism? Jesus was terrible. <laughs> Wouldn't you evaluate it by? Just did I get them baptized? Were they actually come to Christ? Not the issue here. When we suffer, we're suffering, as he says, for righteousness sake. Because Christ also suffered. And even though there were eight people only eight people. He suffered for righteousness sake to save even them. We should never have that negative attitude that it's not going to work. And then as you go on, look at chapter 4, verse 1. And here's our text. Just six verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. You see the connection. He keeps emphasizing that. <clears throat> Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So since Jesus suffered in the flesh, here's what he says, I want you to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I want you to learn to think the way Jesus thinks. And here's our top priority in this. Righteousness is the reason we suffer. We suffer not just to suffer for suffering's sake. That's not the point. Let me find a way to suffer. No, we're suffering for righteousness' sake. Righteousness is our top priority. We are to be champions of righteousness. Over and over again, that is emphasized to us. Champions of righteousness is God's emphasis to His, and especially there in this particular text. 
Notice as he talks about this, there is something that's interesting that goes on here. Why are we suffering simply because we stop sinning? I thought that was odd. You know, in the text, when you're reading all the way up to this, we notice the constant emphasis on your suffering because you're teaching others. You're suffering because you're proclaiming Christ to others. You're suffering because you're trying to get the gospel to others, and they don't like it, and so you're suffering for that. But in this particular text, he goes beyond that. In this case, you're suffering because you won't join other people in sin. At first, that didn't make any sense to me. I thought, well... We live in America. If you want to live in sin, you can live in sin. If I don't want to live in sin, I don't have to live in sin. We have this freedom. Why would you be bugged because I don't live in your sin? Why would you be all messed up because I don't want to join you in doing what you do? I don't get all messed up because you're doing what you're doing. I don't invade your orgies and your drinking parties and go, why are you doing this? Then why are you so upset? I don't understand, Lord. Why are you talking about these things here? Well, because when you do these things, they malign you. And when they malign you, they malign you for a reason. They malign you because your lifestyle is condemning them even when you haven't said anything. And that condemnation becomes obvious to them. You ever felt that? You ever been in a group where everybody's going to do thus and so, and you said, "Well, excuse me, but I, I'm not. I'm not going to participate in that. I, I, my, my faith, I just won't allow. I, I can't allow myself to do that. I wouldn't do that." Oh, who do you think you are? You holier than thou thing. They malign you, and when that happens, they're also surprised. I like the older versions. It says they think they think it's strange that you wouldn't participate. Do you think it's strange that you won't participate in these things? And therefore now they're confronting you. Why are you living this way? And what are you going to do? Chapter 315. You have to be prepared to give an answer. You're giving a reason for these things. In Ephesians 5, verse 11 and 12, Paul said this, Take no part... In the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. We have an obligation to expose and correct what's wrong. And when they see us not participating and not joining with them in the same level of sin and debauchery and what's going on, they then profane you. They define, defile you. They, they speak evil of you. They malign you. They think you're strange. And it leads to you and I giving an explanation gently with respect. But it needs to be said. Many times have we just figured, well, <laughs> why say anything? Why say anything? But he's giving us the opportunity at that particular moment. Now you might be thinking right now, well, you know, that was Peter's day and that was going on with that. But the principle 
of not joining and being maligned and being persecuted because we don't join is quite evident today. I have to tell you, I was, I was quite shocked. I hadn't paid much attention to it primarily. But last June, many of you know, was Pride Month. I, I had never really known. I don't know when the month thing. I did some research on it. And I know when it started with a day. But somehow it evolved into a month. And I thought that was really interesting. We have Veterans Day, a President's Day, we have Memorial Day, we have Labor Day, Columbus Day, but we have now a whole month dedicated to what has been called Pride. Dedicated to a time in which there is a celebration for the way certain people want to identify them sexually or have sex or whatever. A whole month is celebration. And dare any group, any organization, any corporation, any individual to not celebrate with them. Whether it be the public or corporations or government or companies, you must accept and promote and celebrate this sinful lifestyle. I was blown away by it. It is the reason that I think 1 Peter is so important. When I preached 1 Peter 20 years ago, I had to stand up and say, you know, 1 Peter is going to be a hard thing to study here primarily because we're not feeling it. It's not part of what is going on with us. But now we do feel Do you realize that there were two members of our congregation in Nashville that almost lost their jobs because they wouldn't participate in Pride Month. It was just touch and go. One young man was 23 years old and his boss came to him and said, I want you to train this young person to drive our corporation van in the Pride Parade. said, I can't do that. Could you get somebody else? He said, you telling me no? You going to risk your job for not doing what I'm asking you to do? He gave an explanation. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I can't do that. I'm not doing that. I'll do whatever else you want me to do. But I'm not doing it. It was really, really close. One of our elders refused to participate in giving to a pride organization and for their benefit. And he was thrown out of the National Realty Association in America. Fortunately, his local realtor said, I don't care, he's still working. It isn't a matter of whether or not or when we might be persecuted. It's already happening. It's already going on. And there have been hundreds of people in government jobs, corporate jobs, who have lost their jobs because they wouldn't participate in some of these things. I was quite proud of a lot of the Tampa Bay uh, baseball players last year who said we're not wearing that uniform. 
gave a very nice, very gentle, very caring, very loving explanation of why they couldn't. And fortunately, there were enough of them that the organization said, well, run. But this is just where this is going. But it's not enough for us to just talk about, well, you know, look at these people who are doing this to us. That's not the way Peter told us to deal with this. Peter wanted us to be able to answer this. People wanted us to be able to be ready to talk about the fact that we will not join this. We will not participate in it. So I think it's a good time to talk about some of those things. And this, we're using one example of one particular sinful practice, but it applies to any other sinful practice that you could talk about. So think about four one things. First off, be aware that Satan renames sinful practices. He did from the very beginning. Eve, did, did God say you couldn't eat of any of the trees? Oh, no, 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 we can eat all the trees. We just can't eat this one or we will die. Oh, you're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have all the fun he has. He doesn't want you to be exalted like he is. He's just always trying to put you down. He's changing what is being spoken. Abortion. Well, that's women's rights. As Herschel Walker said in in his debate in Georgia this last week uh, concerning abortion, he simply said, you know, there's another life in that room that needs to be considered that has rights as well. It's renaming these things that makes it so interesting. In Isaiah 5 verse 20, there's nothing new about this. Isaiah 5 verse 20, they call evil good and good evil. It is interesting they call this Pride Month. I remember seeing bumper stickers of my fifth grader. I'm proud of my fifth grader because they got A's or something like this. But this is pride in something that has caused a 15% at least suicide rate of these young people. This This is pride in something that the Lord referred to as against nature and debased in Romans chapter 1. But they take their terms and they misuse them and they rename them to make it easier to make their arguments. This is the danger part about this. Secondly, always remember no one lives without any lines or rules. No one does. Everybody you can talk to always has a place where there's a line. They may, that line may be way, way over here, but there's always a line. They always have one. And one that's one of those areas where you can have one of those gentle and respectful conversations with a person. For, for example, consider a question like this. Do you believe it is acceptable to hate a person because, they're per, because of their personal decisions about gender or sexual orientation, sexual choices? Do you believe it would be right to accept to hate that person? Now, most everybody you're going to talk to says, oh, no, 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 you can't hate anybody for those particular choices. No, that would not be right. Exactly, we agree. Can't hate those people at all. Well, let's follow the second question. Do you believe there are some lines that ought to be drawn? Some laws that ought to be made concerning sexual practices? Like, for example, do you think we ought to draw some lines and have some laws against an adult sexually abusing a child. Do you think there ought to be laws about that? 
most people are going to say, oh, yes, absolutely, except for the ones who want to abuse a child. Now, well, yes, I agree with you, too. We're on the same page on that. Well, then let me ask you this. Would you support a group who wanted to promote adult-child relationships with parades? Would you support that parade? Would you march in that parade? Would you in some way give to that parade? No. No, I don't think I would. We're in agreement. Exactly. You see, here's the deal. We've agreed on two primary principles here. We're not going to hate anybody. There are lines and rules that we believe people need to abide by. We both agree that there must be lines and rules. And secondly, we both believe we shouldn't abuse anybody that we disagree with. We shouldn't uh, hate anybody we disagree with. So can we at least then understand that we both have lines to draw? Our only disagreement is... Where are we going to draw the line? I'm going to draw the line where Jesus is. And if you believe that's wrong, you are welcome to try to persuade me to draw the line someplace else. I'm glad to listen. And I would hope, if you're willing, that you would be glad to listen as to why I believe Jesus' lines are the best lines to follow. We can have some kind of agreement was on an airplane going to Jacksonville, Florida a few years ago. Teach some lessons. Sat down next to a lady and I had really hoped and prayed before I got on the plane. I was reading a book called Moral Relativism. And I thought, Lord, maybe possibly something could come out of this. And I sat down next to the lady and I plopped the book right on my lap so that she could see it real plainly. I said, hi, how are you? She says, well, I'm fine. She looked at me. She says, well, that must be an interesting book. I said, absolutely is. It's fantastic. Really taught me a lot. I said, would you like to know the main question of the book? Yeah, I would. I said, here's the main question. Is it always wrong to take an innocent life? She said, well, I think everybody just ought to look deep down in their heart and make their own decision. I said, really? So, it's not always wrong to take an innocent life and each person just needs to look deep in their heart and, and make their own decision and whether it's okay to make to take an innocent life? Yes, I, I think that's what ought to be done. I said, man, that's great. You wouldn't mind if I stole your purse, would you? She said, what? She took her purse and she pushed it over and I said, well... There are people who are going to look deep down in their heart and want to steal your purse. <laughs> and, and so sometimes I just look deep down in my heart and I just think, man, that purse would be great. <laughs> and she she's didn't catch it right off. And she thought I was nuts. And she finally went, oh, I can see what you're saying. That is a problem, isn't it? Yeah. And I said, yeah, it's a problem. Because you can't just leave the lines up to each person. Because some people are going to look deep down in their heart and say, you know, I just want to shoot you. Does that make it okay? Is it always okay? And she's like, yeah, that's a problem. I said, so, let's go back to our question. Is it always wrong to take an innocent life? She thought of something. She says, well, 
I just still think it's just best if everybody just looked deep down in their heart. I said, good, give me your purse. <laughs> so, back to that again. Why are you going to Jacksonville? Uh-oh. <laughs> Got me there. And I said, well, I'm going to teach some lessons on the Bible. Ah, you're one of those. Turned her head. That was that. But you know what? Those kinds of conversations, I've been able to have a lot of times. And as, as Greg Kokel uh, says in, in some of his lessons, uh, he points out, you know, look at it this way. You're just trying to put a pebble in their shoe. You're trying to show them just for a second. You're inconsistent in the way you're thinking. You just hate this other person because of the line they've drawn. But you can't stand others who don't draw the line you've drawn. That's inconsistent. It's self-destructing. Your argument does not hold water. So what our job is, be prepared to give an answer. Gentleness and respect, love, always. And if we can do that, we can begin to make inroads into culture without marching in the streets, but with conversations with people. Notice this next emphasis that he gives here when he says in verse verse 1, I want you to arm yourself the same way of thinking. Understand for a moment, the word arm here in the Greek is the idea of, of having a resolve. I want you to resolve that you are going to have the same kind of thinking as Jesus. And here, here's what he does. Because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you, do you understand that phrase? Whoever has suffered in the flesh. What he means there is... If you're suffering in the flesh, it means that you are so determined not to participate in sin and not to join them in sin, it will result in your suffering. That's how much resolve you have that you are not going to participate in those things. You know, one of the good gauges that he gives in this text as to to whether or not we are joining or participating they are surprised. They think it's strange when you don't, do not join them. Do people think it's strange concerning the moral standards that you have? I mean, if they don't think it is, maybe you're compromising. Because there's got to be some strangeness there with the world around us. And not only that, we should feel strange. If we're around that kind of stuff and it doesn't make us feel strange... It doesn't surprise us when we hear filthy talk. It doesn't shock us when something on a television is is what we shouldn't be seeing. It it ought to make us feel that way. Otherwise, there's a good chance that we're compromising these things. And then look at the words. They malign you. Now, when you think about they malign you, I don't know how, how much you mostly are probably aware of this. Jew in the first century, it wasn't a problem being a Christian. You say, well, wait a minute, I think it was. Well, no, you don't understand what I mean. It wasn't a problem to simply serve and worship Christ. You could be a Christian in the first century. Nobody cared. 
Which, if you want to worship Christ, you can worship Christ all you want, as long as you're not exclusive about it. Do you know they called Christians atheists in the first century? Christians were the atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods. You see, the problem was not, oh, you just happen to have another god. The problem is that you're exclusive about that god. The Athenians wanted to hear about this strange god that Paul worshipped. But it wasn't just that. See, that's where it is today as well. You can worship anything you want. It's the reason you see a lot of churches who are simply caving. It's, oh yeah, we accept this too. Oh, oh you want to do that too? Oh yeah, we, we, we're going to accept this too. There's an element right now of the Roman Catholic Church read an article about just about a week and a half ago where they are pushing the church and the hierarchy in the church to accept gay marriage. And I'm like, wow. It's really moving. It's really moving. And I, I hate to see that happen. I hate to see them give up on some of those things. But one of the reasons they will is because they've lost the idea of going to the Word of God. And it's just, it's for years been a boat. How, how many people can we get it? But that's where everything is going to go. And so we need to understand it's that exclusivity that I'm going to follow Christ and only Christ before anything else. And that is the only reason that anybody is really going to get upset with me. Look at these words. We're no longer living for human passions. It suffices us for that time. No longer living for those human passions, verse 2, but for the will of God. When you read the word human passions, I'd like you to think about just a moment what he is saying there. All humans have passions. All humans have wrong passions. All humans have passions that are contrary to Christ. But he says you're no longer going to live for those human passions. Now consider for a moment. What did he tell us to not do anymore? Verse 3. You've already participated in these things in the past. That's enough time to do what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. It is time to no longer do those things. We are to deny those passions. We are to exercise self-control. What do you see the argument today? Well, you see, that's who I am. That's that, that thing I do, that sexual sin or whatever it is, that's my identity. That's who I am. That's how I was born. Well, I was born to steal your purse. I mean, that's everybody has these passions. It's wrong to think anything else about them. Everybody has these passions. And we are called upon to deny the human passions. No, sir. No, ma'am. You're not a unicorn. You don't have passions that no one else has. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, there is no sin that's overtaking you that is not common to all men. Everybody has these. And we are called upon to not live in them anymore. It is not a matter of you saying, this is my desire to do this, and therefore this is who I am. And says, this is who I am. This is what I get to do. And you don't get to say it's wrong. That's not so. I have a lot of passions. You have a lot of passions that are against the will of God. 
and we have to stop those. There's your argument. The argument is, is it fails when you say, well, I ought to be able to do this because that's who I am. That's just as easily for these individuals who have formed, by the way, groups and clubs in America of being able to have man-boy relationships, etc., and then to claim that's our passion, that's our identity, that's who we are. And I've heard a few politicians recently actually say, you know, we shouldn't condemn that. That's true. There needs to be a good, gentle, respectful argument insert ourselves into society. You say, well, but if we do that, boy, people are going to get really, really mad. Hey, that's their choice. But that's who we are. We've been called upon to step up to the plate. Not because we're trying to change America to our way, not because we're trying to be political, but because that's what happened in the book of Acts. That's what Peter is talking about here. You are here and I am here to proclaim the glory of Him who called called us. That's why we're here. And He over and again in this text has shown us that is exactly who we are to be. The last words here give us the strength to do this. Number one, He says they will give an account. Verse 5. Who are they going to give an account to? Two, they are going to give an account to Christ. They are going to give an account to the one who is going to judge the living and the dead. There is going to be an accountability at that time. And his judgment is universal. He's going to give that to the living and the dead. Now here again, what do we teach our children, grandchildren? when they get ready to go to school or when they're participating in other things where they're going to be influenced by others around them. Here's who you are. And you and I and everybody in this world is one day going to be given account. And the cool thing about understanding this is the words that he gives in verse 6. And I put it up here in the net version because it's a little easier to follow. He says, Now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. Now first notice those words. For this very purpose the gospel was preached. Why do we share the gospel? Why do we tell others? Because everybody's going to give an account we want not only us but them to be able to give a good account. We care about their soul. We care about them. Because of the judgment of God, God, uh, Paul said we persuade men. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We do this for that. And then secondly, this is the reason the gospel was now preached to those who are now dead. That though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they're going to live, uh, they will live spiritually by God's standards. What is he saying? He's saying, look, the reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead but were righteous, they are now living by the standards of God spiritually. They are now accepted by God. But when they were on the earth, they were being judged in the flesh by human standards. 
the thing that I'm probably most thankful for of anything with my parents. Somehow, some way, and I don't even remember all the details of how they did it because they didn't do it by just sitting down and having conversations with us. They did it by the way they by the way they looked at their service to God and the way they honored God in every way. He was always first in everything. He was always going to be first. And when I went to high school and ninth grade, and I was an ag major, and about 90 kids were in ag, were in ag and, and we all gathered, and they said, uh, going around the room, each individual, can we sign yet to join the Future Farmers of America, FFA? Got to me and I said, everybody said yes, of course. Got to me and I said, yes, I'd be glad to. By the way, just one thing, I can't uh, I can't come to the meetings on Wednesday night because I, I go to I go to Bible study, I go to church on Wednesday night, I go to Bible study. Can't come to those uh, meetings. But I'd love to join if you wouldn't mind not uh, waiving that rule. <laughs> hey, Kirch, uh, no, we're not waiving the rule. Okay, I'm not joining. Next year, the same same thing happened. Well, now I'm a sophomore. People know me a little bit more. Hey, Kirk, you joined the FFA this year? No, sorry. Um, I, I guess I'm not. Unless you waive that rule, I'd be. I'd love to. I'd love to join. A junior said, "What's the matter with you, Kirchigal? You want to go to heaven or something?" Everybody laughed. Every. I was just. It was just. It was the greatest funny ever. I'll tell you something interesting. And I, I'm shocked to even think about it looking back, but it's because of my parents came training me in this regard. I didn't care. It didn't hurt my feelings. I didn't walk away going, woe is me. Because I thought of this text that I didn't even know yet, but the principle had been placed in my mind. They will give an account. They've judged me according to fleshly standards. God will judge me according to spiritual standards. That's the message you want in your children. That's the message you want in your grandchildren. That's the message you want in your heart all the time. You're judged by God's standards. Who cares what other standards are? It doesn't matter. By my junior year, I had made straight A's and ag. Some of them came to me and said, if we'd like you to join the FFA and not go to the meetings, would you, would you go to all those contests and win them for us? Yeah. In May of my junior year, Thursday morning, one of the kids came to me and said, we voted you president of the FFA last night. I said, well, cool. My first order of business is, meetings are on Tuesday night. <laughs> Who cares how man judges you? Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. But when we're in these situations, always thinking how strange I must be, think in terms of how God judges you, not how man judges you. I'm going to sing a song right now as we conclude our worship. If there's any way we can help you, you know we're ready to talk to us afterwards. Step forward even at this time. Back together, we stand close.